Hey, uh, we are so glad that you guys are here. Uh, we are in part three of our series, Bottom of the Ninth. For those of you who are here at North Point, those of you online, hopefully you're at the beach or somewhere better than we are. We don't like you, but we're grateful you're joining us. And, uh, and for those of you uh, at our partnership churches, man, we are such a fan of what you're doing, um, especially you guys at Southside Church. Man, I just have a huge love for you. You kind of brought me out of the marketplace into ministry. So Chris Patton, love you, man. Hey, and, and I am just so glad to be here with you today. We are going to talk about a big idea that I am so excited about. I hope you're excited. I hope you've enjoyed the series so far. Um, I love the idea of bottom of the ninth. I grew up playing baseball. I grew up here in Atlanta, actually. Um, my mom and I, when I was little, uh, through the you know child of the 80s, uh, we would go to Fulton County Stadium and see the Braves play all the time when I was a kid. Anybody else? Fulton County Stadium? That was a disaster, wasn't it? Yeah, we used to go there all the time. Um, I used to love that place. We would buy uh, general admission tickets uh, for the very top upper deck area. And by the second inning, we were already down by first base because we were the only people there. You could sit wherever you wanted. You know, we'd spread out, take a nap. It was awesome. And, um, and growing up a Braves fan, going to see the Braves here in Atlanta, we saw a lot of the bottom of the nights because you only play the bottom of the ninth when you're losing. And the Braves lost a lot through the 80s. So I got to see a lot of bottom of the ninth, and it was so exciting. We would stay for the whole game. And at the end of the game, bottom of the ninth, I mean, it just was, we would put our hats on backwards or sideways, rally cap it up. And, you know, we're like hoping and praying that the Braves would win. And then the other team was praying, but God didn't like them as much as he did us. And so, you know, we're like, you know, hoping. And every once in a while, they would come through in the bottom of the ninth. And it was so exciting, you know, to see that comeback. And isn't it just true? We love comebacks. I mean, as a people, we love comebacks. We celebrate them. We, we memorialize them. We remember them. I mean, I, I was thinking about this series, and I, man, I thought back about that 2004 ALCS championship where the Red Sox were losing to the evil empire. If you're a Yankees fan, well, I don't care, whatever. So you shouldn't be. So Red Sox, Yankees. I'm just kidding. You can like them. They're okay. Derek Jeter's awesome. So Red Sox, Yankees, and, and, and they're down three to one, and they make this dramatic comeback. It's never happened before, and they came back and, and beat them in seven games. I mean, we love those stories, unless you're a Yankees fan. Everybody else loves those stories because we love comebacks. And you know what's so great about the Bible is the Bible is so chock full of comebacks. If you aren't a Christian, if you're not a Bible person, you should read the Bible just for the drama of the comebacks. I mean, it is so incredible how many comeback stories are in the Bible. I mean, let me give you a few of them. People like um, maybe Daniel, I mean, you guys know the story of Daniel? He's thrown into a den of hungry lions. And then the next morning, they rush back to the den. They open it up, and Daniel is alive. He's riding the lions around like a pony. He's trained them. And I'm just kidding. He didn't do that. Well, he may have. I don't know. We don't know. But we know he didn't die. And if you've ever been put in a lion's den, probably not. That's a bottom of the ninth moment. I mean, and God came through. Right? And he survived. It's just incredible. There's stories like Moses. How about Moses? His entire life was a bottom of the ninth moment. Okay, it's like a few weeks old. He's put into a basket, put in the Nile River with alligators, and he's pushed down the river. Okay? Bottom of the ninth. If you're ever in a wicker basket and alligator infested lakes, bottom of the ninth, okay? So he, he starts his life that way. He's rescued and, and he grows up in Egyptian home and the Pharaoh's home actually. And he kind of has some things he's leading in Egypt. And eventually he, he kind of messes up and he kills somebody. I mean, that's a bottom of the knife moment for both of them. And, and then Moses, <laughs> true, right? You laugh because it's true. So then Moses has to flee to the desert. For 40 years, he's in the desert. Now I went to the desert once. I was there for like an hour. Bottom of the night for me, okay? He's there for 40 years. Bottom of the night. 
And then he goes back to Egypt. He goes to Pharaoh. You know the story, right? He goes to Pharaoh. He's like, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And let my people go. No. You know, Charlton Heston did that. And so he goes back. Let my people go. Bottom of the ninth. Because Pharaoh, Pharaoh really held life and death in his hands. He could have killed Moses at any point. And he didn't. And every time he walks back in, there was a life or death, you know, moment. And it was a bottom of the ninth moment. And then finally Pharaoh gives in and everybody flees. You remember this? They take a million Israel, you know, Israelites, the whole Jewish nation leaves with Moses and they, and they're running away. And then of course, Pharaoh changes his mind and they start pursuing him. And they have a pretty good head start until they bump into the Red Sea. Can't cross the Red Sea, bottom of the ninth moment. And God comes through and he parts it and they all go across. So incredible bottom of the ninth moment. There's, there's so many more. How about, how about this guy? How about Jonah? If you were ever in the belly of a fish, you were in the bottom of the ninth. Okay. And even, listen, and even if you can't buy into that whole thing, you're like, ah, that isn't true. Whale of a tail, I don't believe any of that. Hey, if you're ever out in the ocean on a cruise and they throw you overboard because they think you've offended God, it's your bottom of the ninth, man. I mean, that's a bottom of the ninth. I mean, here's one, David. Some of you aren't church people and you love the story of David and Goliath. You watch March Madness and you love it when the 15 seed is almost going to beat the two seed and you start chanting about David and Goliath and they're like, you don't even know who that is. And you're like, I don't care, David and Goliath, because you love comebacks. And that's the story of a comeback. I mean, when you are facing like a steroid ridden giant in a valley and all you have is some rocks and a slingshot, bottom of the ninth bottom of the ninth. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. You got guys like Peter, Abraham, Ruth, and then hello. I mean, Jesus bottom of the ninth. I mean, it's Friday and you're in a tomb, but Sundays are coming, right? Sundays are coming massive comeback, right? Some of you laugh hashtag Tony Campolo, right? So it's Sunday, it's Friday, but Sundays are coming. And so, I mean, biggest comeback in the history of comebacks. I mean, we go from death to life. I mean, Ooh, that's a comeback. And God seems to specialize in these comebacks. He seems to just do such dramatic things in these comebacks. And we love them. We love reading about them. We love experiencing them. But, but here's something we all know. If we just want to be kind of realistic for a moment. <laughs> it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Like some of you love the idea of the comeback. But you look at your life and you think, I, mean, I like the idea, but my life, it didn't happen for me. I mean, maybe you know this, but 95% of teams that play in the bottom of the ninth lose the game. They don't always come back, which kind of brings me to another guy that I came across as I was thinking about this series, this guy by the name of Stephen. You see, Stephen, his story's a little different. Stephen's story has a bottom of the ninth moment, but it doesn't end the way all the other ones end. Stephen's story kind of takes a turn and it doesn't play out the way that we kind of probably wish it played out. It definitely doesn't play out the way we want it to play out in our lives. As we continue the series today, here's what I want to do. I just want to share with you Stephen's story. And I want us to kind of dig in a little bit and see what we can learn from his story. Because I think there's something to take away from it. And I think there's something that will change not just our lives. I think it'll change the lives of everyone around us if we can figure out what we should figure out from Stephen. Now, if you've ever read the book of Acts, um, Acts is in the New Testament. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the chronicle, kind of the life of Jesus. Acts is the next book. Acts picks up when Jesus leaves the planet, goes back to heaven, and the church launches. So when the church is beginning is what Acts is all about. It's written by Luke. He wrote one of those accounts of the gospel as well. So Luke is telling us all about the things that are happening as the church is launching. And when you get to chapter six, you bunk, bump into this guy named Stephen. Now, Stephen was not one of the disciples, but he was a really, really godly guy. I mean, full of faith, 
full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he was just all wise. I mean, he was a big deal in the Jerusalem church and was really helping that church grow and, and flourish. And so um, there was a problem that kind of broke out in, in Jerusalem, though, and there was a group of widows who were not being kind of getting their full daily distribution of food is what we're told. And there was one group that was, another group felt like they were being slighted. And so the disciples wanted to take care of it, but I mean, the disciples they ain't got no time for that. And so they bring in some people. They're going to basically outsource this. They're going to delegate it to some guys who they can trust to take care of this problem. And Stephen was at the top of their list. They got Stephen and six other guys and they all kind of came together. They entrusted them with this and, and they took care of it. But not only that, we are told that Stephen did more than just that. I mean, he took care of the widows, but I mean, I think he's probably taking care of orphans. I mean, he's a, he's one of God's guys. He's such a great guy. And everywhere he goes, he's kind of performing kind of miracles in a way. And people are coming to faith and, and coming to the church. I mean, everywhere this guy goes, he is making a difference, which was really cool if you were a part of the local church. But if you were a Pharisee, it was bad news. See, the Pharisees were doing everything they could to stomp out this movement. They called it the way. They were trying to get rid of Christianity, trying to get rid of this kind of new belief system where we're praising and worshiping and going to church to celebrate a Jewish carpenter that we believe rose from the dead. I mean, good grief, you know? And so they're trying to do everything they can to squash this movement. And Stephen, Stephen is fueling this movement. So they decide they're going to arrest him. In fact, they do the exact same thing to Stephen that they did to Jesus a few months prior. They, they bring false witnesses against him. They accuse him of blasphemy, exact same thing. And then they accuse him of like talking bad about Moses, which I mean, you're like big deal, but that was a big deal to them. And so they bring him in. He's standing in the court of the Sanhedrin, mind you, the exact same place that Jesus was. I mean, he's standing in front of the same people being kind of falsely accused for the exact same things. And they look at Stephen. And at one point, the high priest says, what do you have to say for yourself, Stephen? Now, some of you remember what Jesus did. When Jesus was asked that, under the exact same kind of false accusations, Jesus looked at him and said, well, it is as you say. And then he went silent. Well, Stephen wasn't having any bit of that. To use the kind of the baseball analogy, Stephen grabbed his bat, he steps up to the plate, and he just starts swinging for the fences. And when I say swinging for the fences, he lays into like a speech to end all speeches, He goes back, and this is in chapter 7 of Acts, if you're going to read it. In fact, if you don't want to read the Old Testament, read Acts chapter 7, because Stephen walks you through the whole thing. He goes all the way back to Abraham, and he starts telling the the, the Pharisees and the elders of the synagogue, the teachers of the law, he starts like waving his finger and snapping in circles. I mean, he's like giving it to him. And he goes all the way back to Abraham, and he says, you remember, and he goes all the way through the lineage of Jewish history, pointing out all the places where they ran away from God. They disobeyed God. They did exactly what they weren't supposed to do. I mean, he is just giving it to them. And and they were already mad at Stephen. Now they're beyond angry at Stephen. But but he was just getting started. And at the end of this big speech, he kind of just buries him a little deeper. Like he just needles a little bit more, proves his point a little bit more. And here's what he says. He says, this is in Acts chapter seven, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, which we hear this and we're like, I mean, that's kind of weird, gross, but I mean, big deal, right? You know, but this was a big, big cut down. I mean, this was like a, you know, way below the belt pump. I mean, not good. I mean, like when, when he said this, they were so, so angry. I mean, like, you know, growing up, you would tell your mama so fat jokes. Like they used to tell your daddy so uncircumcised jokes. Okay. (laughs) Like big deal. I mean, you don't talk about that. I mean, it is a big deal. 
So they are, they are super angry. They're super angry. But Stephen, he wasn't even done. He kept going. Here's what he says next. He says, you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? I mean, was there ever a prophet that you didn't persecute ever? I mean, no, hello, right? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you, you have betrayed and murdered him. Remember Jesus? Remember that guy? Yeah, well, he's alive, but you killed him. You're the one who did that. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Boom sauce in your face, Pharisees, right? As my seven-year-old would have said. That's what Stephen does. Super bold. Now, I guess when you've got, you know, God on your team and he's batting cleanup, you feel pretty bold. And that's how Stephen felt. So he just let these guys have it. Well, they didn't take too keenly to Stephen's speech. In fact, they weren't excited about it at all. Luke tells us that they rushed and grabbed Stephen right as he was ending his speech. They didn't even kind of vote or anything. They just grabbed him. Here's, here's what we find out happens. They dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. Now, this is kind of weird. This is Stephen. I mean, this, is, this is God's guy. I mean, he is fueling the growth of the local church. I mean, I mean he, he is an incredible guy. Stephen's the guy who volunteers without being asked to lead the sixth grade boys transit group at the synagogue of Jerusalem. Okay, Stephen's the guy who's tithing and making a pledge to the Jerusalem capital campaign projects. Okay, he's a good guy. He's better than me and I'm a pastor. He's probably better than all of us combined. I mean, he's one of the good ones. He's one of God's guys. It's a big deal. So surely God's gonna remove him from this, right? I mean, surely God's gonna come through. I mean, this is the bottom of the ninth. If you're being stoned, you are in the bottom of the ninth. Surely God's going to come through. Here's what happens next. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is a big deal. You see, it wasn't like a small private stoning ceremony. This was like an event. There were witnesses there. Listen, there was a coat check at Stephen's stoning. There's a lot of people there. So, so here's what God's, maybe God is planning to save Stephen, to remove this from him by one of these witnesses. Maybe one of these witnesses is going to step up and go, no, 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 stone me, not Stephen. Everybody's going to go, that's what grace is. We believe in Jesus, right? It changes everything. Maybe that's God's plan. Maybe he's just going to save everybody through a grace or an exhibition of grace. Maybe that's it. We keep reading though. While they were stoning him, still going on, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which is a little bit, Interesting, because that's exactly what Jesus prayed when he was on the cross right before he died. Then he keeps praying. He says, then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus did that too. Jesus prayed for the people who were crucifying him. He asked God not to hold the sin against them. Then he died. Kind of sounds like Stephen's giving up, but maybe not. I mean, Maybe, maybe God, maybe just God wants to show off. Maybe it isn't that God wants to, you know, mount a comeback when it's three to two. I mean, anybody can do that. Maybe he wants it to be 14 to nothing. I mean, maybe he wants Stephen to be right there at the brink of death. And then he's going to bring him back. And the stones are going to turn to sponges and everything's going to work out because God's going to come through in the very end. Maybe that's what's going to happen. And Luke tells us when he had said this, when he had prayed this, he fell asleep. 
And by fell asleep, he doesn't mean he took a nap while the rocks were hitting him in the face. He died. Stephen died. So what do we do with that? I mean, I mean, I know what to do with David and Goliath. I know what to do with John and, and, and Peter. I know what to do with Abraham. I know what to do with all those guys that came back. I mean, I know what to do with that. But, but what do we do with Stephen? But what do we do with that? What do we do not when it's the bottom of the ninth and we're hopeful? What do we do when the game is over and it's hopeless? What do we do when we're so depressed in our defeat? What do we do when we feel completely lost because we lost? What do we do in that? See, Stephen's story is a little different. It's a little bit harder to figure it out. It's a little bit harder to know what to do with that. I'll tell you one thing we can do with it, though. We can empathize with Stephen. My guess is that all of us either directly or personally have experienced friends or loved ones who faced a bottom of the ninth moment and they prayed and they hoped and they prayed and they hoped and they prayed and they hoped and they lost. And the game ended and the lights went out of the stadium and everybody left and it was over. There was no comeback. It was over. Maybe, maybe you have that in your life. Maybe it was in one of the games of your life, like in your financial life. I mean, maybe it was in your finances. Maybe in your finances, things weren't going well and it was the bottom of the night for a while and you were in debt and the debt began to mount and and it felt like the bank was throwing rocks at you, but you were hoping and you were praying and you were hoping and you were praying and doing everything that you knew to do. And then you lost your job. And then they foreclosed on your home. And somebody bought it and moved in and they changed the key and it's over. It's over. The game's over. Or, or maybe it was in your marriage. Maybe it was the game of your marriage. <laughs> and you and your spouse weren't getting along and and that's kind of normal, I guess, from season to season, but it just seemed to be prolonged. And eventually you decided that you were going to go to counseling together and you did. And, and during counseling, you were hoping to make progress and you were praying and you were hoping and you were praying and you were hoping and it didn't seem to be going anywhere. And then one day your husband admitted not that he had had an affair. He admitted that he was having an affair. Strike two. And then he said, not only that, I'm leaving and I'm going to marry her. Strike three, game's over. There's no comeback. The lights in the stadium are out. Or maybe you're a parent. I have four children. Maybe you're a parent. And maybe in your parenting, you have prayed and prayed and prayed for those children like crazy. And they made some bad decisions along the way because that's what kids do and start from they're born and they keep doing it. But then they got a little older and the decisions carried more consequences. And you did everything you could to support them through their stints of rehab, but now it's the fourth stint and you are out of options. You're out of resources. You're out of money. It feels like it's over. Or maybe you would say that they're just a prodigal and they're gone and, and you don't even know where they are. And it feels so incredibly hopeless. Or maybe, this is an emotional one for some of you, <laughs> maybe you've just wanted to have children. Gosh, and you've prayed and prayed and prayed. And it just isn't happening. And you were seeking treatments and you got that call that the last treatment didn't take. And it was over. <laughs> there was no comeback. There was no option. It was over. Maybe in your dating life, this is you. Maybe you're single 
And you invested years and years and years of your life into a relationship that ended. And you're not 22 anymore. You're 42. And all your friends keep telling you it's okay. You can still meet somebody, but they're married. It's easy for them to say that. It feels like it's over for you. It just doesn't feel like it's ever going to happen. Or or, or maybe it's your health. (laughs) Maybe you were in that doctor's office and the diagnosis came through. And when the doctor began to present treatment options, the minute the word hospice was uttered, it didn't feel like the bottom of the ninth anymore. It felt like it was over. Game over. Stadium's empty. You're standing there in the dark all alone. There's no more at bats. It's over. Aren't you guys glad you came to church today? (laughs) So what do we do with that? What do we do when when God doesn't remove it the way that we hoped? What do we do when when we lose and and, and we feel like it's all over? I mean, what what do we do with that? Here's some great news. When you read the rest of the story and you see what happened to Stephen, it gives us hope that God can do something even when it's completely hopeless. And and here's what I hope we're going to learn. Not only does it give us a little bit of hope, it reveals an opportunity that is so much more significant than the game that we feel like we have lost in. When you continue to read on, what we find out is that when Stephen died, he was buried. And a massive persecution broke out against all the Christians, all in Jerusalem. And during this persecution, it caused all the Christians to flee Jerusalem. They were fleeing for their life. But everywhere they fled, the gospel spread. And if you were Stephen and you had still been alive to see that, it would have felt like salt being poured in the wounds that you had received. But Stephen wasn't there. He was in heaven. And Stephen was seeing a much bigger picture and a much bigger game that was being played on a much more significant field. It was God's field, God's kingdom. And everywhere that the Christians fled, the gospel spread. And so the gospel, the truth of Jesus and the church, left Jerusalem and went into all the surrounding regions. Places like Samaria and Judea and churches and belief was popping up everywhere. And then the lead persecutor, Saul, the guy who was kind of overseeing the coats and overseeing the execution, the martyrdom of Stephen, became the lead persecutor. He began to chase those Christians everywhere he could because he was trying to stamp out the church with more vigor than anybody ever had. And he had a front row seat for what was happening because everywhere he went, he arrested and killed Christians, but he saw their faith grow and he saw their numbers grow everywhere that he went. It was baffling in a way. When you think about Stephen, he's standing in the bottom of the ninth and they ask him what he has to say for himself. You know what he could have done? He could have just apologized and got a spanking and gone back home, but he didn't. Do you know why? I think it's because he understood there was a much more significant game that was happening. There was a game that he had been invited to play on God's field, and he knew that it was the most significant opportunity of his life. See, here's what Stephen understood. Stephen understood that you can be used even when you lose. Stephen understood that even when things don't go your way, that when even things don't happen the way you want, that even when you feel like God didn't come through the way you prayed, that you can still be used even when you lose, that God can still use you even when he doesn't remove you, when he doesn't remove you from the pain, when he doesn't remove you from the suffering, even when he doesn't remove you from a loss, God can use you. And Stephen knew that. He knew it with all of his heart. 
And I believe he thought it was the most important thing that he could do with his life. Because as important as finances and money and marriage and children and all that are, the kingdom is just more important. And the invitation to play in that game, in that ball field, is just more significant. It's just more significant. And how we live determines if this is true for you and for me as well. See, I think that God wants to use us even when we lose. I think God believes that we can be used when we lose. God believes that he could use you even if he doesn't remove you from a circumstance or from a situation. But how you live during the bottom of the night, and even more, how you live in the face of a loss determines if we get to be used. We get to choose that. In fact, we get to choose it completely. And we miss it all the time. It's so easy to miss. And here's why. It's just natural. Because when you're in the bottom of the night, and even more so when you lose, it accentuates it. It causes us to begin to focus on ourselves. We begin to think about us. We begin to pray more about us than we've ever prayed before. But here's what Stephen believed. And here's what a lot of us probably would say is true as well. When we start praying, God use it, not just God remove it, amazing things begin to happen. Because the opportunity has been there the whole time. But we usually miss it. Because we're so focused on having it removed that we never considered how God could use it. But that's what Stephen did. In fact, interestingly enough, as you continue to read in the book of Acts, you find out that the answer to how to be used comes from Saul. Some of you know that, but, but Saul, the coat checker at Stephen's execution, he went on to become this great mercenary, this great persecutor of the Christianity and of the Christian church. But at some point along the way, he actually became a believer he became a Christian and he, and he went from being the greatest mercenary to the greatest missionary. And some of you know him by the name Paul, because when God changed his life, he also changed his name and he became the greatest missionary that we have ever seen. In fact, he wrote over half of the new Testament, but it all started when he was Saul overseeing an execution of a martyr. I think that what he saw began to plant something in his heart that eventually, eventually it changed him. And at the end of Paul's life, he's kind of summing up what it looks like to live in a way that God can use you even when you lose. He's kind of summing up what it's looked like. And listen, he knew better than anybody how that looked because Saul, he faced the bottom of the ninth over and over and over again. It was constantly the bottom of the night for this guy. And now he's at the very end of his life. He's sitting in a Roman prison awaiting his execution. And he kind of writes a letter to Timothy and he says, Timothy, I want you to tell you, it is possible for God to use you even if he doesn't remove you. It is 100% possible. You can have complete confidence in that. And here's how you have to live for God to leverage your loss. He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. That's kind of his solution. He says, if you want to be used, if you want God to leverage you in the midst of your loss, that can be the story for you. That can happen for you, but you have to fight the good fight. You have to finish the race, not win the race, finish the race and keep the faith. Let's look at those three things for a second because I think they're all so critical. The first thing Paul says is that when you are in the bottom of the ninth, if you want to be used, even if it looks like you're going to lose, you have to fight. And fighting is going to mean something different for each of us because all of our circumstances are different. But fighting means we're going to pick up our bat, we're going to step up to the plate, and we are going to swing for the fences. And we're not going to be concerned about the consequences. We're going to be concerned about swinging. 
We're going to be concerned about participating. We're going to be concerned about being used. It means we're going to fight for marriages. It means we are going to fight to love people who are super unlovable. It means we are going to fight for relationships with people who don't look like us, think like us, act like us, believe like us. But we're going to fight for the relationship because we believe that God can leverage the relationship to change us and change them. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. That's what it looks like. That's why Stephen gave that speech. Stephen knew exactly where that speech was going to land him, but he also knew that fighting matters because God can use people who are willing to fight. We have to be willing to fight. And the next thing he says, you have to finish and finish well. Fighting is difficult. Finishing can feel almost impossible. Finishing is hard. It's easy to, easier to fight for a marriage than it is to finish well when he leaves. But it may mean more that you do. It may mean more that you finished well. That you continued to love your ex even though he was or she was unlovable. That you continued to talk well of them in the front of your children because your children matter that much. Finishing well matters. And let me tell you why I think finishing matters even more. You see, we have no idea what hangs in the balance of us, of us finishing well. We have no idea. But there are hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, millions, who knows how many people who are watching your bottom of the ninth. And when you use, you can be used, not just if you step up to the plate, but how you live in a loss matters because people are watching. People are watching. And we don't know what hangs in the balance, but finishing well matters because God can use us when we finish well. And here's the last thing that Paul said. He said that we can keep faith. Not faith that God is going to bring you back every time. Not faith that God's going to tie a pretty little bow at the end of everybody's life. That's not the kind of faith Paul's talking about. I mean, he's about to be executed. Not that kind of faith. But what Paul is saying is that you can have absolute confidence that if you are willing to be used, God will use you. If you are willing for God to leverage your loss, he will leverage it. And he will change your heart as he does, but he will grow everyone around you closer to him. I don't know what could be more significant in the life of a believer than that. And it's not always going to be easy, but it's worth it. And maybe you'll get to see the fruit of it. Maybe maybe you'll get to see your name in a baptism story. Maybe you'll get to hear people come up to you and tell you what your fight and your finish and your faith has meant to them in their heart and their relationship with Christ. Maybe you'll see that. Or or maybe you'll just see a glimpse of it. Or, Or maybe like Stephen, maybe you won't see any of it. But you can have absolute faith that God will use it, even if he doesn't remove it, because that's the kind of God that we believe in. And as hard as that may be for some of you, I can promise you this, you can do it. And the reason I know that is because I'm watching it happen every single day, right before my very eyes. I've got a good friend, some of you know him, his name is Donald Wise. I'd love to introduce you to Donald really quick. Donald um, is an incredible guy. He's a pastor here at North Point. He's been working with North Point for a long time. And here's Donald right here and his wife, Sandy, and his family. And um, Donald is such an influential person for me. Um, He's been a mentor more than just even a friend. Seven years ago when um, I was deciding what to kind of do with my life and my career and there was this opportunity to go to Watermark and become a lead pastor, Donald's one of the first people, people that I talked to. And he said he thought I could do it. And I said, I don't think I have any idea how to do it. And he said, well, then you're the perfect candidate. So Donald and I talked a lot during the, during the interview process, and he was actually the very first person who interviewed me in the group and had a great conversation with him. And 
And those first couple of years at Watermark were really difficult. I mean, not because things at Watermark were difficult, although they were. It was difficult because I just didn't know what I was doing. And I called Donald what seemed like every day for the first few weeks and months because I just needed help. And he was so helpful. And I just fell in love with him and his heart. And he's just such a wonderful man. And, and, then, and then three and a half years ago, um, Donald found out that he had cancer. And some of you have been there before. Donald found out that he had cancer. And, and, and there's no cancer that we wish for. There's no cancer that's easy to deal with. But some are worse than others. And Donald, in his case, he found out that he had a stage three colon rectal cancer. And it was not good. A few days after that diagnosis, he went in for surgeries, first of countless surgeries at this point. And he went in for surgery and to listen to him tell it, he woke up from that surgery and his life was completely altered, completely changed. Can't, during, during, during the procedure that had removed a lot of things from his body and it completely changed how he was going to have to live moving forward. And Donald told me that he laid there for a couple of days and he just didn't even want to go on. He, as he told me, it was the darkest days that he ever experienced. He felt like Satan was just, just on top of him, pounding it into his brain that it wasn't worth it. And then he had a moment, five days after that surgery, where he decided he was going to fight. But not fight to be cured. He was going to fight to be used. Because being used is better than being cured. Wow. And things started to go pretty well, actually. For six months, I mean, he was healing and going through chemo treatments and and he found out that the spot on his shoulder was melanoma, and it was pretty advanced. And so six months in, he's now fighting two different cancers with two different treatments and two different protocols. And it got very, very difficult. And for the past three years, I have watched Donald every single day pray that God will remove it, but even more pray that God will use it. Because being used to Donald is so much more significant than having any of this removed. I, I sat with him this past week for a couple of hours and, and we just talked about life, talked about the Braves, talked about just all that kind of stuff, talked about Watermark and you know, we're building a building right now at Watermark. It's so exciting and he's a part of that. I mean, he's, he's a part of that and he, he's so excited about it. After about an hour, I said, hey, can I just ask you a question? And he said, sure, you know. I said, Donald, how have you seen God use this? And Donald just started crying. And he pulled out a book. There's a book that he and Sandy have. And he pulled out this book. And it's kind of how they're memorializing this experience. And, and he gave me this book. And he began to tell me the stories that are held within it. And it's stories of God leveraging Donald and his family to change other people for three and a half years. There, there are stories. Some of you are in here. There are stories of marriages that have been restored because Donald was willing to engage in the conversations during chemo treatments. There, there are miraculous stories of people who are far from God and struggling and Donald happened to be in the hospital longer than he was supposed to and they bumped into him. Maybe, maybe it was coincidence. Or maybe God on his playing field was allowing Donald to take an at bat. There, there are stories of people who have visited loved ones in foreign countries that couldn't do it, but Donald was there and figured out a way to make it happen. There was a, there was a time a couple of months ago where Donald was in the hospital for 30 days. It was supposed to be a short stint, and he didn't know it at the time, but he, he, he almost died twice during that time. His family told me they didn't think he was coming home. And he kind of woke up out of that state, and the first question he asked is, where are my business cards? 
Because every time Donald goes to the hospital or goes to chemo treatment or go to the doctor, he takes business cards with him because he invites people to our churches. Some of you are at our churches because Donald invited you in a cancer or a chemo treatment session. Donald just believed that being used is better than being removed. And while we want to pray for removal, being pray, be praying to be used is so much more significant than that. When you think about how God can redeem losses, I'll tell you how he can redeem losses. He redeems losses by using you in other people's lives. He redeems your suffering and redeems your pain. He redeems your loss by allowing your story to interact with other people's lives and to change them forever. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to change you in the process. To talk to Donald, he would tell you that his relationship with Jesus has never been better than it is three and a half years into cancer. I asked him at the end of our conversation, I said, Donald, if you could do anything over again, what would you do? He said, I'm not sure. He said, I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't do. I wouldn't remove cancer. I sat there for a minute and I thought, oh my gosh, wow. So here's the opportunity and we're gonna end with this. See, some of you are in bottom of the ninth moments right now. And some of you just took your last swing in the bottom of the ninth. So some of you feel like that, that the bottom of the ninth is over. You feel like you're standing in a dark, empty stadium. You're the only one there because the game isn't being played in your life. It's over. You need to know there's a bigger game that you've been invited to participate in. You need to know that you can be used even when it isn't removed. That God can use you even when you lose. And for the rest of us, at some point, life has a way of bringing us all to the bottom of the night, doesn't it? And life has a way of having all of us lose at some point. Donald told me that it took that moment five days after surgery for him to change his attitude and change his perception. So here's what I thought we could do. And this is what he told me. He thought it'd be great. I thought maybe as we end today together, what if we just created a space for you to have a moment to ask God to use you? Whether you're in the bottom of the ninth right now, whether you feel like you've lost right now, or whether a bottom of the ninth is coming tomorrow or next week or next month or next year and you don't even know about it yet. What would it look like to just decide right now, God, I, I want you to remove it. I, I want you to help. But more than anything, I want you to use it for your glory, for our relationship and to draw people to you. Because in the end, God, I know that's really all that matters. So here's what we're going to do together. All of us are going to do this. I'm going to ask you in a second to just to bow your head and close your eyes. And, and normally we pray and normally I would pray for you or pray over you. But this time we're going to do it different. We're all going to pray together. And, and, and if you don't even believe in God, it's okay. You can pray this as well. Because I know that you want, even in your losses, you want it to be leveraged for something bigger than you. Your heavenly father can do that. And I just want to give us a moment to kind of stake that into our heart. And just tell God out loud that we want him to use it, even if he doesn't remove it. So I'm just going to read a prayer to you. And as I do, I'll just ask you, as we kind of bow our heads and close our eyes, for all of us just collectively to respond. And we're all going to pray out loud together. You can just repeat what I say after me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, while I do not desire to be in this circumstance, now or in the future, I do want you to use every game for your glory and for your good. 
in my bottom of the ninth moments. Give me strength to fight for what you would fight for. But if I lose the game, I pray that I will finish strong and increase the faith of others. And I pray this in your son's name. And everybody at church said, amen. Thank you so much.